people have gotten high forever in a zillion different ways. So to think this is something that you're going to have none of is just ridiculous. But what we can do is protect people so that they can be productive and happy and have lives that give back to the community. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. As the COVID pandemic grabs headlines, another deadly epidemic is quietly ravaging communities. It's the epidemic of addiction that has led to a record spike in overdoses. Nationally, there was a 29% increase in overdose deaths last year. In Vermont, opioid deaths rose by 38% in 2020, with 157 people who died by overdose. For librarian Brett Stanchu, these statistics had a name and a face. In 2016, a local man who broke into her library in Woodbury, Vermont, died by suicide after encountering a library trustee. This led Stanchu on a quest to understand opioid addiction in her community and in Vermont. It also led her to reckon with her own addiction. Her quest is the subject of her new book, Unstitched, My Journey to Understand Opioid Addiction and How People and Communities Can Heal. In this hour, we take a look at the addiction crisis locally and nationally. In the second half of our program, we talk with Maya Salovitz, a New York Times bestselling author. Her new book is Undoing Drugs, The Untold Story of Harm Reduction and the Future of Addiction. Salovitz, who herself has struggled with an addiction, argues that the U.S. has made the drug epidemic worse by insisting on policies that promote abstinence. We talk first now with Brett Stanchu about her experience with addiction in Vermont. I began by asking her to explain her connection to a man she calls John Baker, who broke into her library. So the book begins a few years ago when I was working as the librarian in a rural Vermont library. And it was a one it's a one room library. It's attached to one of the school buildings. And I didn't really know this man at all. And the book although it begins with an incident involving him, isn't really particularly about him. Um, But the book begins in a way in which when I first started working at the library, I became aware that someone was breaking in after hours. And I was new to that position. I was recently divorced and I was very much caught up in my own life. And I slowly began to realize that the library had a sense of cigarette smoke in the mornings when I arrived. And slowly I began to realize that someone was breaking in after hours and I began to put the pieces together that it was someone who lived nearby. Hmm. And what did you do to find out who it was and what was going on? Well, because it's a small town, I ask around naturally. And through the rumor mill, I, I did find out a few things about him. And one of the things that I heard was that it was rumored that he was using opioids. And the other thing that I think is important to know is that I didn't really want anything to do with him. I didn't want anything to do with what I really considered a problem that I wasn't really ready to address. So I went through a lot of effort to try to prevent him from breaking into the library, including calling the state police. And I wasn't really hugely effective at that. It was a problem that kind of came and went for a while. Recount what happened when a library trustee um, 
nearly uh, encountered him in the library? So on a January afternoon when the library was closed, a trustee walked in on him and found him in the library when the library was closed. And he ran out, he fled, he, he knew he wasn't supposed to be there. And then my trustee called me. I was living in a nearby town, Hardwick, where I still live. And I drove up to the library. And by the time I got there, it had come over the scanner that the man had committed suicide. And that was, for me, just an incredible shock. I was just incredibly unprepared for that news. What did it make you feel? It made me feel shock, first of all, and an incredible sort of sadness at the very beginning, I would say, just this incredible sorrow because I realized my story in a certain way had been connected to his story, and his story was so much larger than I had really realized. And I had, I had really misunderstood what I should have been doing. And maybe if I had been a different person at that time, maybe I just would have left the door open and the door unlocked and just let everything ride through. So what more did, than, go ahead. What did you learn about um, John Baker? And I'm curious also, I understand that is a pseudonym. Why, since he's no longer alive, you felt the need to, to right. use a pseudonym for him? Right. What did I find out about him? Yes. So it is a pseudonym that I use for him. What I found out about him was that he had struggled for quite a while with this addiction and that it was not, it, it was, how can I say this? I, I just want to think for a second <laughs> about what I want to say because it is a pseudonym that I'm using. I think maybe the best way for me to describe this is it made me look at addiction in a very different way. And what I found out about him was I had looked at him just in terms of his addiction, and I hadn't really looked at him as a person. And it took me a little while to put those pieces together. And when I did, I felt completely horrified because I realized I had acted in a way in which I treated someone else in a way that I shouldn't have. If I had stopped and listened, maybe looked a little harder, maybe thought a little harder, maybe I would have done something differently. Is one of the reasons that you used a pseudonym for this person that it's a small town and you it was part of your challenge in writing Unstitched that you're writing about people who you either know or have, you know, maybe one degree of separation from. Yes, that's a big piece of that. Um, and in Unstitched, I there are a number of interviews that I do. Um, some of them are with people professionally who have worked with addiction, such as healthcare staff and the local police chief. Then there's a number of people who are in recovery who spoke about their stories, all of those people's names are their real names. But the context of the story as well is a small town and the stigma around addiction runs deep. So there were a lot of details that I wanted to change 
and a lot of names that I wanted to change because it wasn't clear to me that people wanted to be part of that story. You set out on a quest to learn about substance abuse and addiction in your own community and in your own state. What have you learned in this process? I learned a phenomenal amount in this process. And the first thing I think I really learned about addiction is my own stigma that I held against people who suffer from substance abuse. And once I slowly began to lift that that stigma that I held, I began to ask a lot of questions like, what really is addiction? Who becomes addicted? What's the story behind that? And once I began to sort of lift that, lift that veil that I was looking at people who suffer from addiction, I began to see it in a much more complex way. So I began to look at an addiction in a way that didn't necessarily pinpoint a person, but put a person in a much larger societal context of what addiction is. And then at the same time, as I went on and asked more and more questions, I began to realize that I was a piece of that story too, that things I hadn't wanted to see in myself were really driving my own actions. I want to definitely come back to that point, but I do want to, if you could just sort of sketch out the scale of addiction in Vermont and in your community, I want to be sure that, you know, you convey that. Yes. And that's one of the things I began to realize the more and more questions I began to ask how deeply entrenched addiction is. And at first I thought, well, I'll write about opioid addiction. But the further I began looking and the further I began asking questions, I realized opioid addiction is one manifestation of far deeper problems of addiction in our society. And that includes alcohol as well as substances. And I began to realize that so many people I knew once I began asking questions were in one way or another touched by addiction. Either they themselves have struggled with addiction, they had family members, they knew someone, but all of that, a lot of it was just driven underground. And it was as though people were reluctant to speak about these things for reasons I understand very well being one of those people myself. But when I began to really ask and really say, I really want to understand, I would often find that floodgates were opened and people started to talk more and more to me about the difficulties of addiction and what they had struggled with. So when and why in this story do you confront your own addiction? It took me a little while to get to that point. Um, and I think part of it was shifting from looking at addiction first as a problem of opioids. And part of that is because I myself never, I haven't had a struggle myself with opioid addiction. And so when I began at first to ask questions about opioid abuse, I could see this is sort of a distant problem still. That's still someone else's problem. It's an unfortunate problem and I can feel compassionate about it, but it's someone else's problem. But the more I began asking questions, the harder I began looking at addiction. And 
one of the first women that I interviewed who was in who was in recovery and still in recovery is a young woman who works in town. Her name is Shauna Shepard, and that's her real name. And she shared her story with me about how she struggled for years with opioid addiction for all kinds of reasons. She's had a very, very challenging life. And then she came back and talked to me again. And the main reason she did this is she wanted to help other people. She wanted them to understand that she had managed at this point to surmount these challenges. And she was so brave that it made me really look at myself and say, how can I not talk about my own struggles with addiction and how can I really not look at them? If I had been more upfront that I myself had had a drinking problem, I probably would have made different choices before in my life. But it was only through looking at these other stories and seeing other people being brave that I was able to take that step forward myself. Had you ever thought of yourself as somebody with a drinking problem? Oh, I knew that for years. I guess that is the very first thing that I would, I've known that since I was in my 20s. It's a problem that I struggled with for years of my life. And at a certain point felt that I would never, ever escape either. But it's something that, and again, this goes back to stigma. Drinking is so, a drinking problem, particularly for a woman and particularly for a mother, is shrouded so deeply in stigma. It was something I never even told my closest friends. What got you to confront your own addiction? For recovery or publicly, I guess. For recovery. I, I hit a point in my life where I wanted to take my life back. And I felt that at a certain point, I was either going to do it or not do it. It wasn't like a light switch changed. It was that something in my own life, I had just reached a point where I was really finished. And the odd thing is, and I know this sounds like a cliche, but I was reading about habits and I used, I used to think habits were just sort of a slight thing that they didn't matter much at all. But when I started to think more about them and look at my life, I realized that addiction is a habit. And if it's a daily habit, then I began to think, then that's a habit I could break. And so every day when I hit this point, and it was Jan, it was December 7th, was Pearl Harbor Day, I decided that each day I had one goal, and that would be not to drink. And I just went day by day by day. And that's how I managed to change my life. You describe a scene in the book where you overhear your daughters uh, yes. as you poured yourself a glass of wine, which you describe you went from bottles to boxes of wine to yeah. keep up with the amount that you consumed. Uh, you overheard your daughters in the other room saying something like, is she doing it again? What did that do to you? That was the, the absolute lowest point of my life. And I will say that Anyone who has struggled with addiction has hit terrible points, but for everyone, it's a different point. And for me, that was the point at which I could go no further. And it, it seems like such a simple thing, but it was just those few words. And the truth is, I love my daughters 
more than anything else on this planet. And I knew I had to do better by them. Was it a difficult decision to decide to reveal this publicly in this book? Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. And in fact, the whole first draft of the book that I wrote, very little of this was revealed. And then I handed it in and my editor said to me, you have to write about yourself. And I said, no. And she said, yes. And she pushed and pushed. And finally, I realized that I had taken these stories of other people who had struggled so much more in their life and had so many more challenges. I had to ante up. I had to really show that I had skin in the game too. And then I decided I just had to write through the fear of it. And I couldn't think about publishing the book. I had to write the best book that I could write. And that's what I endeavored to do. Well, I think you accomplished that. And I don't think you would have accomplished that had you not included your own vulnerability. Um, you write so beautifully about the difficulty of asking other people to share what are some of the worst moments in their lives and to be vulnerable about that. Um, and I think a lot of your credibility in this story uh, and the way that you connect with readers is in doing that to yourself as well. Um, so I can understand why you didn't want to include it <laughs> because of how potent it is, but I'm sure glad that you did. Um, I wonder what inside your own, uh, you know, substance addiction gave you to the people you were talking to? I think it gave me a great deal of compassion for other people because I knew what it was like to hit the point where you felt there was no real way out because I had been at that point. And although I eventually have managed to change my life, it took me years, I mean, years to get to that point. It was not easy. But I also realized when I was able to to really look at myself, it opened up myself in a way in which I was no longer as afraid as I used to be. And so I could look at other people and admire them in ways that I hadn't really acknowledged before, where I, I could see them in ways that were much more profound. So I have to say that having an opioid addiction, I think is so much worse than anything I went through. I think it's it's much more challenging on many levels. You had a conversation. You actually sent a snail mail letter to the U.S. Attorney of Vermont, yes. uh, then the U.S. Attorney, Christina Nolan. Yes. Um, why did you reach out to her, and what did you learn from your face-to-face -face meeting with her? So this, again, is just another lovely part of living in Vermont. So you can write a letter to the U.S. Attorney, as I did, and said, I'm really interested in how the criminal justice system, what their view is of addiction in Vermont and, and what's transpiring with that. And I got a phone call back within a few days. And Christina Nolan, who was uh, the U.S. attorney at the time, said, come meet me. So I drove to Burlington and I went up and met her and she was the most lovely person imaginable. But 
And she embodied for me so many things I found incredibly admirable. So her position at the time was, I mean, she dealt with the absolute worst crimes in Vermont. I mean, just the most terribly upsetting crimes, but yet the compassion she showed for people was extraordinary. And I I really want to say that compassion doesn't always mean just softness and letting people slide by. It also really means holding people accountable and really compassion means sometimes doing things that are hard for other people. What do you make of the modern harm reduction movement, which is about, you know, not abstinence, but meeting people where they are, um, things like needle exchange. Um, it also, you know, involves using Suboxone or Methadone, um, which are not traditional parts of the abstinence programs that are advocated, you know, by some of the older line uh, recovery groups. What's your take on that now? I think harm reduction has benefited an enormous amount of people um, for all kinds of reasons. But the main thrust behind harm reduction is really meeting people where they are at that time and trying to keep people alive. And at the heart of that is this understanding that people's lives aren't just snapshots, that if you have an an addiction, there's a long history behind that addiction. Chances are that it's not something that you developed yesterday and that recovery sometimes is a very, very long process and can take a long time. But it acknowledges that people die from drugs, right? And if we're going to give people the opportunity to be to take their lives back and to recover, we have to first allow them to be alive. And the other aspect of that is it offers people a kind of dignity that I think is often overlooked. So to recover from an addiction, you often really need a lot of help to get to that point. But in the end, you have to do it for yourself too. So you need on some level to have that dignity in yourself acknowledged. And we forget that if you've if you feel so disparaged and you feel so hopeless, why would you try to save your life? But if we are trying to save people's lives, the understanding behind that is lives are worth saving. They really are. Even when that person may feel that their life isn't worth saving, it still is. So it's a program that offers dignity to people as well. Um, Are you still a librarian? I am not currently a librarian as in the pandemic, my working life changed too. And I'm now working for the town of Greensboro. Okay. Well, I want to ask, since you did spend a lot of time of of your life as a librarian, if you could talk a little bit about the role of libraries and librarians today, um, you know, I'm a huge fan. I periodically work in local libraries, uh, at the Kellogg Hubbard Library in Montpelier or at uh, the Waterbury Library, just because they're, uh, I, I just find them more productive. But yeah. I know from that, that, you know, libraries are dealing with a lot of people who are unhoused, people who are struggling with substance misuse. Um, what did you see as a librarian? I saw a lot of things I never expected as a librarian particularly as a librarian in a small town. And I did all kinds of things for people, including at times driving them around, 
filling out divorce papers, helping children in all kinds of ways. But libraries, again, are one of my most treasured places in Vermont. I love libraries. And libraries are a safe spot for so many people. And librarians are often a compassionate and they're compassionate and willing heart to listen. And they do a lot of good that people often don't realize. People probably don't realize that um, many libraries now have Narcan, um, you know, the anti-overdose drug. Right. And you talked about being having very mixed feelings about getting trained in its use. Um, say a little bit about that. Why were you reluctant and what do you think about that now? That again was encouraged by the Department of Libraries. It was a training program that was set up with the Vermont Department of Health. And at first I misunderstood it because I thought it was just a program where we would just stock Narcan. But really that program and that training that I participated in was really about helping librarians understand the much deeper story of addiction and why we should be more compassionate to other people. Um, at first, I was very reluctant because I felt that maybe this was someone else's problem to deal with. Maybe it was a medical issue that should be dealt with. But once I went through this program, I really began to understand that libraries who, start nar who stock Narcan are doing it because potentially they may save a life. And that's important. And finally, Brett Stanchu, can you tell us what the title Unstitched means? The title actually comes from Greg Tatro, um, who's a parent in Johnson, whose daughter who lost his daughter to an opioid addiction. And he's spoken very publicly about this. In a conversation I had with him, he remarked about his little town, Johnson, and about how the town has become unstitched, that our communities have frayed. And he said to me, we need to stitch the thing back together again. And Unstitched is essentially a book that looks at our society and how it's frayed apart. And what are the ways we can start to put our society back together again? It's a very, it's a, it seems like a title that maybe is an unhappy title, but it's a title that has, it's just filled with possibility because we can stitch our world back together again. Well, Brett Stanchu, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Brett Stanchu is the author of the new book, Unstitched, My Journey to Understand Opioid Addiction and How People and Communities Can Heal. We continue our discussion about addiction and turn now to New York Times bestselling author Maya Salovitz, whose new book is Undoing Drugs, The Untold Story of Harm Reduction and the Future of Addiction. When she was in her 20s, Salovitz struggled with an addiction to heroin and cocaine. She says that programs promoting abstinence from drugs have resulted in broken families, mass incarceration, and the spread of disease. Salovitz says a more effective but more politically controversial approach is harm reduction. Examples of this include needle exchange programs and using methadone and buprenorphine to treat addiction. 
I asked Salovitz to begin by recounting her own experience with addiction that's been the foundation for her reporting on substance abuse. So when I was in college, I ended up becoming addicted to cocaine and heroin. And I had been a very good student. I had gotten admitted to Columbia University. I was not what people tend to think of when they think about addiction, but I was very much at risk because as it turns out, I'm probably on the autism spectrum. And what that means for me anyway, is that I had just all this kind of sensory overload that made me really made it really hard for me to pick up social cues and connect with people at the same time I wanted to desperately connect with them. And yet I had all these weird interests and things like this. So when my weird interests switched over from like opera and science fiction to uh, drugs, a lot more people wanted to pay attention and hang out with me. So this slowly ended up with me becoming addicted, basically. Hmm. What did the drugs do for you? Um, how did you, you know, you mentioned being on the spectrum. So how did drugs help or, or change the situation? So, right. So, um, first psychedelics actually allowed me some insight into perspective taking. So I could see things from other people's point of view better. Um, because when you take psychedelics, there is just this, you know, that your sensations are obviously extremely subjective because your world has just changed because you put a chemical into it and it changed in such a severe, profound way. So I just started actually being nicer, basically, and more able to connect. And then I won't give any benefits to the cocaine. That is just not a good drug. But um, for me, the heroin calmed me down and gave me that feeling of being safe and warm and loved that I had been missing. And I think, you know, this is how those chemicals are supposed to act naturally in the brain. So your endogenous opioids, the brain chemicals that are similar to things like Oxycontin and heroin, these are there to connect you socially. What they do, like everybody thinks about them in terms of pain relief, but what they're really there for is to allow you to connect the memory and sensations associated with someone you love with the feeling of being warm, safe, and connected. And so when everything's working well, you are with your partner or your child or your mother, and you feel warm and safe and loved. Um, or if you feel threats to those relationships, you feel threatened and anxious. Um, for some reason, some people, that system goes awry. And then when you get exposed to an opioid drug, you feel like, ah, oh, this is what I've been missing. I'm okay. Things are okay. I feel all right. Um, and so that was what it gave me. And that so much more than the euphoria and the sort of visions and nodding out and all this stuff. Um, it was really the sense of safety that uh, hooked me. When did you realize that you were hooked, that you were unable to choose it? It actually had power over you. Well, this came first with cocaine. And what happened was I would find myself saying, I know it's going to be a horrible experience if I shoot coke. I just know it. I'm going to get paranoid. I'm going to be uncomfortable. I'm going to stay up all night. It's not going to do what I wanted to do. But I wanted it so desperately that suddenly it became, well, I'll just have one. And then, you know, 40 shots later at like four in the morning, you know, and it was like 
I really, really wanted something that I actually hated. You said 40 shots later. You were taking 40 injections in a night? Sometimes, yeah. I mean, the thing is, I was a Coke dealer and I was living with a Coke dealer, so I kind of had pretty much unlimited access. And so, yeah, people sometimes don't believe that that was actually the case, but I can tell you that it was, and my arms can tell you. Hmm. Your book, Undoing Drugs, begins with a very dramatic encounter in 1986 with a woman who you say saved your life. Talk about what she did and how you found out who Maureen Gammon was and where she is. Yes, yes. So um, one day in 1986, uh, just shortly after I'd started injecting, I was visiting my friend Dave in his apartment in Lower East Side, and he was out buying drugs for me and him. And she was there, I later learned to get him into rehab. And this was going to be sort of his last binge before he goes into treatment. And so we're just sitting around together and I didn't really know her. I didn't even know she was one of his girlfriends. Um, so I'm just talking with her and she told me that I was at risk for AIDS. And at the time, even though I was a pretty well-informed person, I just thought that was like gay men. I didn't associated with IV drug users. And so I was horrified. And she was said, she said, yeah, you must never share needles. If you absolutely have to, you need to clean them first with bleach and then with water. And so from that moment onwards, I was as compulsive about doing that as I had been, as I was at the time about injecting drugs. So as you've uh, we're, we're fast forwarding several decades now. You're writing this book, Undoing Drugs, and it occurs to you this woman saved your life and that she was probably not just making these things up. She might have been part of a larger movement that you later come to call harm reduction. Um, explain how you found Maureen Gammon and what was the movement that she's part of? Sure. So what was going on for me at the time, the only thing I knew about Maureen when I started looking for her was that she was like a white woman from San Francisco and she was friends with my friend Dave and she knew enough to recognize that somebody who is actively injecting is not going to just stop that moment because you tell them about a risk. So I knew that she had to be somehow involved with these bleach distribution and teaching programs that had gone on in San Francisco around that time. And so I called people, I emailed people, I asked everybody if they knew who this could possibly be. And about 30 phone calls or so later, I found myself talking to Maureen Gammon, who it turned out had worked with one of the projects in San Francisco that distributed bleach and, and taught people how to use it. Now, this was a moment when, as you said, people thought AIDS was a gay men's disease and were only beginning to make the connection that AIDS was also being spread by intravenous drug use. Um, so what was it that this early movement began advocating and why was it a radical idea, this idea of bleaching your, uh, your works, as it was called? Yes, yes. So what happened was that in the United States and around the world because of the United States, there has been this idea that the only way to deal with drugs is to stomp them out, prohibit them, make sure that everybody is abstinent 
and that those who refuse to follow this sensible rule will suffer extremely. So basically, if you're giving somebody a clean needle, you are preventing them from the extreme suffering that we believe should happen if you choose to use illegal drugs. And so they thought it would enable people to continue using longer or that it would encourage kids to use drugs because they didn't have a third reason to go to jail, like for the needle as well as the drugs and as well as whatever else, right? So um, it was just, it, it created the situation in which being kind and promoting the health of people who use drugs was seen as an affront to the war on drugs. You were helping the enemy. And instead of realizing that like, wait a minute, um, HIV is, can be spread sexually and is an infectious disease, drug use isn't. Also at the time, HIV was pretty much 100% deadly. Um, and people, more people recover from addiction than don't recover from addiction, but no one at the time had recovered from AIDS. So it was just like, it made no sense. And a lot of people around the world began realizing that, you know, uh, we can either let a sexually transmitted disease run rampant in our communities because it's not going to just stay with the IV drug users um, and it will infect their babies of pregnant women and all kinds of things like this. Or we can give people clean needles, which um, freaks somebody out morally. But actually, as it turns out, and this is where the harm reduction movement comes from, if you give somebody a clean needle, it does not prolong their addiction. It does not do anything other than help keep them healthier. And dead people can't recover. So what we found, and this shouldn't have been a surprise, but if you treat people with dignity and respect and kindness, people will tend to treat themselves better. <laughs> so for example, when, when Maureen taught me to use bleach, after that, I was like, I know this way to be healthier now, and I'm always going to do it because I really don't want to get HIV. And so all of these kinds of things started growing out of that. And in Liverpool at the time, they were aware that Edinburgh, Scotland, which was 200 miles away, had a raging HIV epidemic among IV drug users. And Liverpool knew that they had exactly the same conditions that set up Edinburgh to be in trouble. They had a lot of young unemployed people. They were deindustrializing, and there was a big supply of heroin. Um, Liverpool, however, at the time did not have any HIV. And so they knew that if they could get people clean needles and they could expand access to effective treatment, that uh, they would be able to perhaps uh, prevent an HIV epidemic in their town, which they then went on to do so impressively that Margaret Thatcher then declared that the entire policy for the UK should focus first on reducing harm. Hmm. And so that is harm reduction. And harm reduction is the idea in drug policy that if you, that the main goal should be to stop people from getting hurt, not stop them from getting high. And when you think about that, it's just a much more sensible goal because people have gotten high forever in a zillion different ways. I mean, cats have catnip, like it goes even beyond us evolutionarily. So to think this is something that you're going to have none of is just ridiculous. But what we can do is protect people and protect them long enough so that they can 
be productive and happy and have lives that um, give back to the community. So on the other side of this issue are 12-step programs. Talk about your own experience in 12-step programs. Um, and by this, we're referring to Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, and and their spinoffs. Yes. So um, at the time that I got into recovery in 1988, I was told that the only way to recover was complete abstinence from all psychoactive substances. Nicotine and caffeine were okay, but everything else was not. Um, let, and let, let me just interrupt you there. Um, so that's a key moment. What made you even decide to go into recovery? Gotcha. So um, by the time I went into recovery, I was I weighed 80 pounds and I was just shooting up constantly. And I just knew that um, I knew I needed help. I, I had found myself like begging this guy I really didn't like for heroin. And the thought popped into my mind that I could try to sleep with him, which was insane because my boyfriend was there, his girlfriend was there, and I didn't like him. Uh, well, he was okay, but I didn't like him that way. Um, so um, the... Um, you know, that was just sort of enough to make me think like, wow, I need help. Um, and that all the things that I've been trying before weren't working and I'm in serious trouble. So um, I was also facing legal consequences. I had been arrested two years earlier and I was facing like serious prison time, but I had continued to use for two years nonetheless, despite that. But anyway, I had a court date the next day. I knew my dad would be there and that he could bring me up to my mom's house and that they would help me find treatment, which is what happened. And the treatment that I was entered into, like 99% of the treatment at the time, was focused on teaching people the 12 steps and on the idea that you have to be completely abstinent. So... The idea that you have to be completely abstinent runs headlong into harm reduction, which says you do not have to be abstinent, but will still help you. So um, explain for you what this meant to have these two sides pulling at you. Right, right. Well, eventually, through looking at the scientific literature, I learned that the idea that no one recovers from addiction except through 12-step programs is just completely false. In fact, most people recover without any self-help or without any treatment at all. Now, my case was severe enough that that was not what was going on. Um, but there are a multitude of paths to recovery. And one of the most important, especially for your listeners these days, is using methadone or buprenorphine. These are the only two medications that we have that cut your risk of dying by 50% or more um, but that is only if you take them long-term. And people have this confused idea that if you are on these medications, you are high and wasted and you can't work and you can't be there for your family. In fact, when you are stabilized at a correct dose for you, you can be there, you can drive, you can take care of yourself, you can be as productive as anybody else. And that's because what happens with these medications is they produce a complete tolerance to the intoxication. And so when you even, so you could do this even with heroin, like if you just took it at the same time at the same dose every day, and that dose was titrated for your physiology, I could be on it and you wouldn't know. So 
but people are confused because they have this idea that recovery must be abstinence. And this runs into real problems because people stop taking medication that's working for them because they think they're not clean. And because 12 step buddies say you're not really in recovery. So that is a real problem. Now, all of that said, abstinence does have a role in harm reduction. It's just the sort of extreme end, because obviously, if you are abstinent, you cannot have any drug related harm. Um, But harm reduction says that's just one of many pathways. And in order to get people better, we need to meet them where they are, but not leave them there and help them to improve their lives in the ways that they're capable of in the situations that they're actually in. Because, for example, if someone is unhoused, expecting them to become 100 percent abstinent before they get housing is probably not that smart. And we've discovered harm reduction housing, which is called housing first, um, that actually, when it is properly supported, works amazingly well. It gets people off the streets that you thought you would never get off the streets. And it's because it says we're meeting you where you are. If you're going to use drugs here, you're going to use drugs here. We're going to have you use clean needles. We're going to do our best to protect you. We're going to do our best to move you towards the most healthy behavior for you. But, you know, some people are so traumatized and have had so much difficulties in life, whether from poverty or from mental illness um, or just from the trauma, that um, they're not ever going to be able to stop drugs without first being taught how to cope. Hmm. And all of our programs try to do it the other way around. You must stop, then we'll help you. And it doesn't really work for a lot of people. So the most common form of addiction is alcohol addiction in this country. What does harm reduction look like in alcohol addiction? Because everybody knows, you know, people who have, uh, you know, who who will often talk about how long they've been sober uh, as a way of starting their self-description. Yes, yes. So, um With alcohol, ways of harm reduction generally involve moderating use or changing the timing of it, changing the amount, uh, changing the setting. So if you, for example, um, go from binging every weekend to binging every other weekend, that's harm reduction. Um, And if you go from, you know, daily bottle of scotch to a daily glass of wine, that's harm reduction. Um, What matters in defining recovery in harm reduction, however, is not the quantity or the substance you're taking. It's, is your life getting better? Are you able to be there for your friends and family and your children? Are you able to go to work and do meaningful stuff that matters to you? Are you able to connect with the world in the way that you want to do as comfortably as possible in this crazy pandemic? So are you saying that for people who find moderating alcohol, for example, to be just extremely difficult, it's very got a very powerful hold on them, um, it may still result in them being pulled over for driving under the influence, things like that, um, that that's, they should try other things, that, that just going cold turkey is not the answer? Well, no. 
Um, first of all, there is a harm reduction tactic for um, drunk driving, which is known as the designated driver or Uber or Lyft. Um, so <laughs> start with that. Um, no drunk driving is not acceptable um, and it's not minimizing harm. Um, but so there are people like I could never moderate cocaine like that just ain't happening. I'm not touching cocaine. I haven't had any since 1988. I don't intend to have any unless maybe I'm on my deathbed and I'm feeling weird. Um, but um, I like, you know, um, no, I can't moderate that. Um, so a lot of people, if alcohol is their drug of choice, they may not be able to moderate it or they may be able to moderate it, but it is such a pain in the butt to do because you constantly have to watch how many have I had, you know, what do I say? Yes. When do I say no? If you just say no the whole time, that's just one decision you have to make. But with moderation, there's a lot of smaller ones. And for a lot of people, it's just not worth it. So, um, you know, that said about half of people who have um, diagnosable drinking disorders um, will resolve them by moderation, but it should always be your choice. And that's the thing about harm reduction, which is it's not about imposing anybody else's idea of what you should be doing on you. It's about what is working for you and how do you make that work better? And how do you make sure you're not missing something um, by like deceiving yourself, right. you know, because you might be like thinking you're cutting back, but you're not actually monitoring it or whatever it is. Um, but it's interesting because in AA's literature, it has, I believe it's in the 12 and 12. And it talks about how if you're not convinced try some controlled drinking. And if it works, great. You don't need to come back to us. If it doesn't, you'll be convinced that you can't do it because you gave it a good shot. And now you can do the 12 steps. You And you write about the, that the idea of recovery is any positive change, which is a, an interesting variation on, you know, cold turkey or bust. Um, talk about the state of harm reduction now. You've chronicled how it's undergone tremendous stigmatization uh, at the beginning of your, you know, this discussion. Where are we at now? So it has, I mean, one of the things that was amazing about writing this book was to see how far we've come in terms of harm reduction from the 90s and the 80s when I first got involved. Because back then, the government was opposed to it. Most of the Black community was opposed to it. Um, there was just massive support for the war on drugs, like 90% of the population thought that locking people up, um, even for just possession was like a great idea. And we needed to send the right message. And, you know, we couldn't even, even though we were facing a deadly pandemic, we didn't want to like be soft on drugs. Turn to now when suddenly, of course, we see the victims of the opioid problem as being white. And suddenly, being nicer to them is okay. And so harm reduction gets massively adopted all over the place. And harm reduction has always realized that racial justice has to be a part of the conversation, a, cre a critical part of the conversation because our drug laws are racist. The only reason the drugs that are legal are legal and the drugs that are illegal are illegal is racism and anti-immigrant panic. So you can just look at the history of these laws, you see the rhetoric that was used to pass them, it is undeniably so. And also, if you just look at the fact that you couldn't possibly have legal cigarettes and illegal marijuana on the basis of harm and science and risk, 
One kills half of its users. The other one has never been known to <laughs> kill anybody directly. Um, you know, so um, it's, you know, it just doesn't make any sense unless you look into um, why these laws were passed. And it's a series of moral panics around race and immigration generally. Hmm. So, um, so harm reduction has always recognized that um, particularly in America, but everywhere as well, um, race is the thing that we don't discuss when we're talking about this. And if you say like, oh, I'm not your typical addict, that's because you're assuming that people are thinking that the typical addict is a poor person of color, which is rather a racist statement. Um, so I have said that in the past and I don't say it anymore for exactly that reason. Um, but the, you know, the can, way that, sorry. Yeah. Can you talk about um, where in the world is harm reduction done right? What is a model for the U.S. as we look to perhaps a more productive and constructive way to approach addiction? Sure. So Portugal is the answer a lot of people give where they have decriminalized possession and where they make treatment very widely available. They took the money directly from policing into the treatment system and made it, you know, if you get stopped with drugs, you don't get arrested. You have to show up at a thing called a dissuasion committee. And if they think that you're just a casual user, they'll just let you go. Um, if they think you have a problem, they'll kind of try to talk you into treatment, but nothing's mandatory. Um, so that's one model. And they have, um, you know, methadone buses and this kind of thing where people can go and get um, low threshold treatment. And what, um, what are the results of that? that they have to show for that? Well, they have had a dramatic decline in um, HIV infections and other bloodborne diseases, um, uh, no greater increase in drug use than in the rest of Europe um, who, that didn't decriminalize, <laughs> um, much, much, much fewer overdose deaths, um, lots more people getting into recovery. So good stuff, basically. Hmm. Um, the other... The thing is that like sort of there's there's lots of good policies that are small that are available in one country, but not others. There's no place that has it all. So, for example, Switzerland has heroin prescribing and you would think, oh, this is the ultimate enabling. Nobody's ever going to like, you know, get better. But actually, the people who get prescribed heroin compared to the people who just go on on the street they start getting jobs, they start getting healthier, they start being able to be there for their family. Um, sometimes they're just like, because the thing about heroin prescribing is most of when you're an active heroin user, you're generally spending 90% of your time chasing the drug. Hmm. Suddenly you've got it. This thing that you always wanted, you have, and it doesn't fix you really. You And then you have a ton of time to do other things. And then you start to realize like, wait a minute, well, maybe I should be doing this. Maybe I should be doing that. Oh, there's this job training thing. Maybe I should, you know, so it's, it's kind of a funny thing, but it's like when you sort of take away all the elusiveness and the cops and robbers and all of that out of it, it doesn't actually make people more want to just stay addicted forever. It gives them space to consider making changes. Now, some people will stay on heroin maintenance. Some people may get worse, you know, it's, but Overall, the picture is extraordinarily positive. Hmm. Um, finally, I want to ask, uh, you make a comment towards the end of your book that uh, perhaps harm reduction is a model for coping with climate change. Explain what you mean by that. 
Sure. So we're all harming the environment all the time. People drive, people fly, um, people eat meat. Um, probably we're not going to give up all of those things. I personally am a vegetarian, but I don't expect everybody else to become a vegetarian. But that's actually one of the best things you can do for the planet. But so if people don't eat meat one day a week, two days a week, that has an enormous impact. There are a lot of things that you can do while recognizing that we still need larger governmental help because me being a vegetarian is not going to make any difference in the world if we don't actually change policies to fix the larger problem. But recognizing the idea of harm reduction, which is, you know, if there is a risk um, that people are going to take, regardless of whether we want them to or not, how do we mitigate that? And how do we mitigate it in context such that we don't just switch it somewhere else? And that's really what harm reduction is about. Okay. Well, Maya Salovitz, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you. Maya Salovitz is the author of Undoing Drugs, the Untold Story of Harm Reduction and the Future of Addiction. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.